Well, it is going to be really fun today. You picked an awesome day to show up. We're doing something a little bit different because mom and I get to share God's word and some of the things that we've learned through it together on this Mother's Day. We thought it'd be kind of ironic if a 26-year-old guy with no kids gave you a Mother's Day message. So that's one reason. But the second is that uh, I personally have learned so much from watching my mom from afar. In the last couple of years that she had a somewhat empty nest, and even as we transition to serve here at the center, um, it's been cool to have her encouragement along the way. And so if people don't know you, Mom, give us like a 30-second uh, version of your entire life history. Well, I'm from I'm the South, kidding. so I cannot say my name in 30 seconds. So, um, <laughs> That's true. Well, obviously, I'm John's mom, and I, um, in my other life, I run an accounting CPA practice, and so that's something I do uh, now that my kids are kind of gone. I had to fill all those hours with something, so that's what I do, <laughs> and um, I also stalk my children on Facebook. <laughs> That's true. You laugh, but you do it too. Well, we're talking today. We're in week two. Mom, you know this. If this is your first time in this series, we're in week two of what we call Shepherds and Kings. It's a story through the life of David. And in David's life today, we're in 1 Samuel 17. You probably know the story of David and Goliath, a giant that this little scrawny five foot eight David had to overcome. And uh, when you think about your life, Mom, like when you look back, what were some of the giants in your life as a mom or as a parent or as a follower of Christ? Besides being your mom or <laughs> parenting you? or Shots fired. All right. <laughs> no, I'm just It's going to be a fun 30 minutes. Yeah. I think for me, like when I look at giants, um, I didn't, thankfully in my life, struggle with some of the, the uh, struggles that some people have. But as I look back, I realize one of the biggest struggles that I had was in allowing God to direct and have total control, like submitting to God's plan. I, I tend to have, be a planner, and I have definite goals in my life, and sometimes those maybe wouldn't be exactly what God wanted to do, or the timing would be different. And so I think for me, that would be one of the giants. And even in parenting, I saw that play out a lot of times. So. Yeah, that's good. When you think about, I mean, giants in your life, um, we all have them, and we've all encountered them, and we probably have asked the question at one point or another, at least maybe, at least I have, is how do I overcome the giants in my life? How do I move from fear and trepidation when those giants show up to knowing that I can overcome them? And what's that process even look like? For you, a giant may look like debt or an addiction or a rebellious child or a fractured relationship or marriage. It could look like infertility or negative thoughts or negative words. But all of us have kind of external giants that we face. But some of us, it goes even deeper. It's not just symptomatic, but there's internal giants that we face as well. And that could look like unrest. That could look like exhaustion. That could look like a need to be independent from others or independent even from God's provision. It could look like a lack of, of security in who you are or lack of self-esteem. But at the core of all of those things, if you boil them down to their kind of most basic form, they're all asking the question and living out of the question, does God really care about me? When it comes to the giants in my life, does God actually have an interest in helping me overcome these giants? Is there? Do I have the ability in and of myself or with God to actually overcome some of those things. And I love that throughout David's life, he encounters giant-type moments. 
And the one we're about to read in 1 Samuel 17 is probably the most clear example. He's literally facing a nine-foot-tall giant. And uh, so if you've got the scriptures, we're actually going to turn there. And my mom and I are just going to kind of talk through the scripture. And if you want to take notes, I'd encourage you to do that. But the scene is set up like this. In 1 Samuel 17, there are two armies that are about to go to war. They're about to start this battle, this skirmish in the Elah Valley. And the Elah Valley may be insignificant to you. But to the Israelites, it was a very big deal. Because if the, if the Philistine army could get through this Elah Valley and come onto the other side and take out the Israelite camps, they essentially would drive a wedge in the Israelite kingdom and eventually take it over. And so David was the coming king. Saul is the present king in this story. But there are some serious things at stake. And so for you, maybe even as a dad here on Mother's Day, you're out on the front lines You've given up your career to defend your country and your freedom. And so if this battle goes well, you get bragging rights and you get to keep life at status quo, right? You get to kind of maintain your life. The second is at stake is if you fail, you've lost everything. Not only will you likely lose your life or run like a coward, you will lose your family. You will lose everything you've built up back in your hometown. And so there was a lot of things at stake in this battle. And so with the scene said, if you've got your scripture, you see in 1 Samuel 17, verse 4, a giant steps onto the scene. It says in verse 4, a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. And on his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. And this is kind of the scene for months and months, what is about to happen in verse 8. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him... And I kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine, this is Goliath, said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. <laughs> That's kind of the scene that we have, right? And this went on for months. Again and again, Goliath would come out and taunt the Israelite people. And even the king, it says King Saul, they were like, I'm out. I don't know. We're going we're gonna to go back and try to figure out a, a plan D at this point. Like, we don't know who we're going to present. And so, uh, this, what's happening by Goliath calling him out is what historians call the single combat of champions. That's why they call, in verse 4, Goliath a champion. Essentially, both armies would send out their best. And a 9-foot guy with a 15-pound tip spear and all the latest technology when it comes to armor is a pretty good option, right? It's a pretty solid choice. And Israelites got nobody, right? They're a bunch of farm boys. They couldn't even make their own weapons. They used to go to the Philistines to, hey, could you help us build swords and sharpen swords? I mean, you can read this throughout the story of the Old Testament. And so it's a bunch of farm boys lined up against a bunch of Navy SEALs, all right? And the Israelites are not looking good in this battle. And so they're trying to find out who's going to go and face Goliath. Because in a single combat of champions, what would happen is... Goliath and the best of Israel would fight against each other. And whoever won that battle represented how the battle was going to go. It's kind of like an appetizer. So if Goliath wins, Philistines are like, we got this in the bag. And if Israel wins, the Philistines are headed the opposite direction. Like they're retreating 
they're pretty much done. And Israel can't come up with anybody. Because Goliath is around nine feet tall, came from a region of Gath where the dudes were strong, ripped, and clearly taller than anybody you probably know. And uh, on the flip side of that, David is around five foot six. He's like an average guy. Like he's short, okay? Like he doesn't have a lot going for him, and he's a shepherd. And so he wasn't interacting in uh, Philistine battles very often. Let's just put it that way. And Israel's response again and again and again was to run. Every time there was a Goliath, they peaced out. But if you jump ahead to verse 20, David gets sent to the front lines. So early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of another shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle position, shouting the war cry. Israel's and Phil- Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his, left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. And whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Skip ahead to verse 26. Look what David's response is. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the enemy, the, the armies of the living God. What I love about David's story, and my mom's going to touch on this, is that David wasn't content with giants. David wasn't okay with the fact that there was a nine-foot-tall warrior down in the bottom of this valley challenging not him, not even just the army or King Saul, but his God. And he wasn't content with that. How many times even in your life and my life have I been content with giants? Say for a season, I'll I'll let this go because I don't really either believe God can help me overcome it or believe he wants to. Does God care about me when it comes to that? But David makes a decision. And we see what he does. In verse 32, David says to the king, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. And Saul's looking at this shepherd like, You? Like, you're talking about you, right? He says, Yeah. Jump ahead to verse 34. David says to the king, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. Okay, check that. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul, I imagine this sarcastically, said, go and the Lord be with you. Like, good luck, buddy. Like, this is not going to be your typical bear or lion fight because that in itself is like the ultimate Cabela's commercial, right? He's taken everything. He's taken the sheep out. There's jawbones flying everywhere. This is a little guy in a loincloth. Like, it's just a weird scene. But, but in that context, David's like, I can do it. And his motivation wasn't because he wanted to show off. It wasn't even that he was going to become king, and this was maybe a threat to that. Did you see his motivation? In verse 36, it's because this guy didn't just defy me or Israel's army. He defied the living God, and I'm not content with that. I know that we can overcome this giant. And so this whole contrast of proud Saul, proud Goliath, and humble and submitted David takes place in the story. But I think it's fair to ask the question, as you look at your scriptures too, what really killed Goliath? 
Was it the precision of David's sling and his stone? Or was it David's submission to God's power? Was it his decision to give up? Even his fear, maybe some of his anxiety, some of the, uh, I don't know if this is going to work out, but I'm submitting it to you. Which one was it? And uh, I want you to talk a little bit about your own story in that, because you relate to David's story. And even as a family, I can think back to, to moments like this where we had to overcome giants. But what would you say in response to that? Or how does your story even tie into that? Well, um, one of the things as John was reading, I was just thinking about what the key was, and that was David's submission. And as I um, think back, I was in thinking about being here today, I thought about when John was little, and when he was one, God asked our family to, to move to, um, from Birmingham, Alabama, all the way to North Dakota. Now, I lived three hours from my mom and dad, and it was the perfect setup. We would go there on weekends. John was the favored only grandchild. <laughs> and everything, yeah, everything was just perfect, you know? And so when this, when this call came, I thought, well, we'll go out there and interview, but there is no way that God is ever going to ask us to do this. Like, we can't do this. And so as I look back now, I realize that was the beginning of my submission to whatever it was God wanted me to do, that was the beginning of that story. And um, so I remember the day that we decided to go out for the interview. I remember sitting in the house with John on my lap, and I remember saying, God, there's no way that you're going to ask us to do this. How in the world? Like, who's going to be there for his birthday parties? And who's going to be there for Thanksgiving? Who's going to be there for Christmas? And all these things, all these dreams and visions that I had of raising my son in relationship with, with my parents and with my uh, sibling and all that. And so as I sat there, I probably sat John down for a nap, and I opened up my Bible. And the scripture reading that day and the devotion for that day, the lady had written this, and the front of it said, but my children, and this is what she wrote, real concern for your children is commendable. But how could, and this was the Israelites, how could the Israelites have so, so forgotten the promises of God? How could they be so woefully lacking in trust in the Almighty our children and we ourselves are never safer or more blessed than in the place of God's appointment. I made a copy of that page, and this 25 years later, I have carried this piece of paper with me so many times, and I didn't even realize that that day was the beginning. It was like a stone that God put in my hand to slay the giant of self-control and what I thought was going to be his will for my life. My mother said this plan was hatched by the devil. That's what my, that's what my godly mother said. <laughs> this plan was hatched by the devil. And so we had to kind of work through that a little bit. I had to talk to her about, you know, like this process. And I'm sure I even walked this scripture, probably made a copy and gave it to her. 
But anyway, we did move out there, and, and God blessed us, not only in our ministry. God blessed us with more beautiful children out there. It was just a, a place of God's blessings like I never would have imagined. And so then, a few um, years later, God asked us to move from there to Wisconsin. And I'm thinking, yes. And then it was Michigan. It was Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I was like, yes, yes. And not that I had any idea about Michigan, but geographically, it was getting closer and closer to my family. That's all I was thinking about. Sorry. And so, um, but there again, every one of those times was after that initial stone of submission, those were all easy. But they were easy, and I look back, they probably weren't even submission because they were things I wanted to do. So I was thanking the Lord big time about that, you know. It's like getting a good parking place. Oh, thank you, Lord, you know. <laughs> but anyway, um, but that would all come to a, a kind of a crashing halt um, when we lived here in Grand Rapids. And as I see some of you here today, you know a little bit about this story. When God asked us as a family for my husband to quit his job and move across the sea. This was six or five years after 9-11 and he asked us to, um, the Lord asked us to move to a Muslim country and there was a big giant at my house and I was so thankful that I had this, this paper. I remember sitting down with the kids and bringing this paper out and say, all of my life I have submitted you to Christ. I have submitted my will, but this is really hard. I don't want to do this. And the change that it was going to be. And I remember our son, Joel, who some of you may know as JJ. He said, we can do this. We're not wimps. <laughs> and I thought, he has no clue. <laughs> I thought about that a lot of times when I was over there and things were so hard. I'm not a wimp, you know. But anyway, it was humorous, but we said no. And at that time, the peace of God in our house went away. Immediately after I told Mark, we just can't do this. We cannot, we cannot do this. I can't, I'm just scared of this. The peace of God in our house, it was like a dark cloud came over our house. And for a period of hours, we knew we had made the wrong decision. Maybe we picked up, I, I don't know, would it be like David taking Saul's armor and trying to fight in Saul's armor instead of fighting with, the, with the, something he was familiar with? Not sure. But God clearly showed us through our spirits that it was wrong that that decision was wrong. And so we called back, and they were uh, they said, we still want you to come, and so we started making preparations to go. However, I still had to go to Mississippi and tell your grandmother. I knew this was not one of those phone or text kinds of things. This is get this paper out and go sit down with mom and talk to her. And, and I don't want you to think anything about my mom. She was being exactly the way I would have been. You know, it's like, you went to North Dakota, you move, now you're moving closer, now you're going halfway around the world, and have you watched the news? Do you not realize? So I sat down um, with her. We talked through the process. And she said to me, don't you know 
what this could do to your children. And I believe the Lord gave me a stone, and it was, this is what I want to do for your children. And so I'm not minimizing that it wasn't tough, but we packed up everything that we had, moved into these little crates, and we took the kids, went through the process, and went to Azerbaijan, which is a 99% Muslim country that is south of Russia and north of Iran. And so um, it, was, it was going to be a challenge. But we weren't wimps, so we were up for it. I don't know if they showed, did they already show some pictures? Of, okay, they will. So anyway, we had been there. Um, we got there, and it was definitely a culture shock. There were a lot of things, personally, women, um, I couldn't drive. There were a lot of things in our, in my, our family kind of dynamics that shifted because I was used to just taking care of so many things, and all that started just crashing down. It was super hard. But we were, we were about three weeks in, and I thought, okay, we got it. We got it, you know. That day happened to be Jordan's birthday, and we, we had met some children from the, uh, a school that were a few blocks from our house, and we were going to invite these girls after they got out of school over for her birthday party. So we're walking. I remember this so well. Um, we were walking to the school. Jordan had my hand on this side. JJ had my hand the, the we're not wimps guy. I don't know where John was. Um, <laughs> studying, I'm sure. <laughs> so we're walking, and we're, like, having a great time. Now, as you can imagine, in this culture, we stood out because we looked differently, and we were a larger family. And, and so we, are, we were used to, you know, standing out a little bit. But this is great. We're celebrating Jordan. She's eight. She's happy. She's going to have a not-so-great Barbie cake that I made. It looked, It was terrible but anyway we were celebrating and life was good and so since we were since we always walked everywhere this was not an uncommon thing and so I were going up the sidewalk and I said now right up here we're going to cross and when I said that I let go of Jordan's hand to show her where, where we were going to cross and what she heard was cross and the next, the next moment, she ran into the street. And I turned. A big black Mercedes was coming down the street. And the next thing that I know is that Jordan is on top of the hood of the car. And to say that time stood still and that my heart just was crushed is an understatement. Even it's been 12 years, but even those, even thinking about it last night, I've only like said this in poet, there's like five times <laughs> since then because it was so hard to see her on top of this car. And of course, everything just went into pandemonium. And I'm looking at her and she's looking at me. And of course, the man in the car is, and I have like, three Azari words I can say, and none of them helped in that situation, you know, like bread or whatever, you know. It, it was not helpful. And so I scream, like, Jordan, and these Azari ladies come out, and they start going, Allah, 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 
and they're like praying and all this it's just like swirling around me and all I could think all I could say was Jesus 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 and Jordan you know and I watched her like kind of like slide off the car and then start coming toward me and the Zary man is just terrified and literally he went on and she came over to where I was and I was like are you okay and and these ladies are praying and they're trying to put water in her mouth which they believe will cure everything but it was just like all this swirling around and I'm like you're okay and she's like I'm okay and I was like how in the world how in the world are you okay a car you just got hit by a car and she said she's very determined like her mother and she said I'm okay can we gotta get out of here can we not talk about this and can we still have my birthday party <laughs> and I was like yeah <laughs> we went on we got the girls we went back to the house we literally pretended that it didn't happen but after all was said and done that night it was really only the beginning because I was furious I I was not faith-filled I'll tell you that and I went in I knew I needed to pray for her but I was almost like avoiding it. I went in, she's laying in her bed, and I prayed. I, I was like, I prayed that the spirit of fear would not be on her, that she, if there was any injury, that it would be healed, like all of these things. But those words, John, sounded so hollow. It would, They were just like bouncing around because I was saying them, but in my heart, I was, I would, you ever been there? Like, you're saying all the right things, but inside, you're, it's not good. So anyway, I went back to my room, and I, I wrote down later a little bit of what I said to God. And I don't, I, um, it's, I'm not, like, super proud of that, but this is the way the conversation was. Did I bring... And now I would say, because we're in this sermon thing, and submit to your will. Did I bring my family halfway around the world for you to kill my daughter within three weeks of us getting here? And on her birthday, I trusted that you would keep her safe. And you said you would. And I told everyone that you would. Where were you? I gave up my friends. I gave up everything I had to come here because I believe it's what you wanted me to do. And this is your response. I do not understand you. I do not understand this. I want to go home. I couldn't sleep, obviously, that night. I didn't even want to close my eyes because all I could see was her on the car. Sometime I must have fallen asleep because I woke up the next morning and then I went into her room and she had slept soundly. And as I laid out her clothes for the day, I looked and there was not a scratch on her body. Nothing. You don't get hit by a big black Mercedes and not have a scratch. So that was healed, but my relationship with the Lord was a little tenuous. And from there, too, I mean, you shared that was almost the moment you had to submit your yeah. life 
like your kids and right. us. And yeah, all the way back to these papers more. again, right? Giving them back to the Lord again and again and again and wondering how is this fitting into this plan? Lord, I, you know, how does this fit into your plan? And, and to be honest, there's a lot of things in life that make sense to me now, but that day other than my own submission, I don't, I don't, I still don't understand that. That's like a big question when I get to heaven. Could I just chat with you just for a second? Like, help me understand that one. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And yeah, it was a, like a few weeks later, Mark and I and the kids, I don't think John was there either. You would manage to escape all these kinds of things. We were, it was getting close to Christmas. We were heading to the, to a market that we were familiar with and we could trust eating the food from there. And we left the kids in the car Mark and I are in this market. We're walking around, and we're getting the, a few things. And all of a sudden, I thought I heard firecrackers. And I was like, what is that pop? And nothing. And then in a second, like another louder pop, and then screaming. And it's, it, I think like you, if you were at Circle K, and somebody came in with a gun, and you were screaming, and they were screaming in English, even though it's terrible, you have a sense of control. But when you're somewhere when you don't understand any of the language, it's a it's even more terrifying. And I and they and so all these people are running around, and I realize there's someone I see like there's someone with a gun. There, this place is being robbed, and so I remember someone like pushing me down behind a freezer, and all I could think of was. Lord, I gave you my kids. Now you're going to take my own life. What in the world? How in the world? Like these thoughts are just spinning through my head. And plus, I'm, I try to get up and look, and I can't see Mark anywhere. And in that culture, they would, when things happen like that, they separate the, the men and the women, or the women and the children. And so they started, they got me up, and all the time there's like, like shooting, there's like all this stuff happening, people are screaming, and they pushed me down this flight of stairs, and all these other Azari women, it was like this throng of people, and so they're all screaming, and, and so I get down into the, like in the base, what I don't, I didn't know was the basement of the market, and I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm okay, and they all went one way, and something, someone, I don't know, and I don't know how to this day, pushed me down this hallway, and there was a door out. And I stepped back outside, and I realized, I'm like, I'm okay. But where is Mark? Like, he's still inside. I go to the car. I have no way to get in. I'm banging. And the kids were all listening on, like, this is kind of like when they would wear headphones, you know, and they're all like, listen, and I'm like, I was nearly killed. Let me in, let me in. And so finally they let me in and I, and I'm texting. I'm calling like even our phone to text Mark, no response, no response, no response. And I'm sitting there. It seemed like literally hours. Lord, what is going on? How, how are you going to, how are you working in this situation? Like, this is terrifying. Mark finally came. Everything 
was okay. It was an armed robbery. No, they were, we found out later, you know, they weren't intending to shoot anyone. They were shooting up. Later we went in and saw bullet holes all through the top of the ceiling. But that night again, I got home and battled another, like another giant. How in the world is this in your plan? How, what is going on? How can I trust you? It seems like, you know, what is it? And the only thing I kept coming back to was realizing that God's ways are higher than my ways. And there were things in my own kind of independent self that I needed him to kind of walk me through. After those like pivotal times, we saw a complete shift in the ministry at our church. People started coming to Christ on Easter. We baptized an Indian lady that fully knew when she, that day when she went under the water, that her family in India was going to pronounce her dead. There were so many things that God started doing. And I think in some ways it was from like the response and we got to see the fruit of that submission. I remember just one personal, one other thing. I remember when I was always the worship leader and I remember like the boys, my boys would sing behind me, play the guitars and stuff. And then there was a day that John stepped up over there and led worship for the first time, like in a public setting. And he said, mom, I'll do it. But will you stand behind me? And literally, he wanted me right behind him. I looked like a spooky. I'm like, how is Hold he not? Me. Like, he wanted, it was like right behind me. He's like, I want to know you're right there. I remember that. And I thought, you know, who knows what God, who knows what would happen differently if we hadn't all as a family had, had those times, tough times, when really all we had was each other and the presence of the Lord in our home. We didn't own anything. We didn't have anything, but that's all we had. And we found it was more than enough, you know. I look at that. I see that what my mom predicted was true. It wasn't what was going to happen to my kids. It was going to happen for them. And now every one of them is serving Christ in, in the ministry capacity, worship leading, being a pastor. And so we came back from that. We weren't the same people, needless to say. There are so many times as a mom that I look back and I see our lives were totally changed by that family experience. We came back and we were asked to be a part of a church plant. And probably if we had not just gone through that time, we probably would have just said, no, we're good where we are. But that church that we helped start, and Tanya reminded me today that I sang on the first Sunday, was this, this church. And the, and the kid that led with me standing beside me is now your pastor. Now, as a mom, there is literally nothing better to, than to know that my kids are following Christ. And the giants that were slain even through those tough times in my life, I wouldn't trade those. I wouldn't go back. And I definitely would not go back to that day in Birmingham and, and ask the Lord, don't make me do this. I definitely am glad that he said, I got a bigger plan. My arm is not too short. I can do this. You just need to submit. 
and all those dreams that I had for my family. It's really cool. The Lord reminded me of this this morning, just last week. I was in Mississippi getting my southern accent rejuvenated. <laughs> and also it worked. It worked. <laughs> and also spending time with my mom and dad, who now are moving to Indiana so that they can be close to us. And guess how far away they'll be? Three hours from Grand Rapids. So God has taken us literally full circle and is redeeming what I gave up that day when John was one. So I know that my children and myself never safer or more blessed than when we're in the place of God's appointment. And that's exactly what David did. He took what God gave him, not what someone else thought he should do. He picked up those stones and slayed the giant. And so that's my story. It's awesome. I'd love to share just a little bit of the conversation that led up to that. And, uh, and then we'll close. But one of the things that we talked about was the truth of whether it's in her story and David's story that God won't slay what you will not submit. God won't slay the giant that you refuse to let him be a part of. God won't slay the, the moment or the thing in your life that's keeping you back from him unless you submit to him. And God, in reality, has given you everything you need for victory, everything you need to overcome giants except submission. And so when I think about your story and even just David's story, that comes to mind. Um, I wonder if just as part of closing today, um, if you'd pray for moms and even just those of us in the room who may have a giant that we're facing. Thank you, God, just on a personal level. For your sustaining grace for your watch care over us. Thank you for that. Thank you that your arm is not too short and that what you call us to do, you can help us do it and you give us everything we need to do that. Thank you for your blessings in our lives. So that's where we start, Lord, with grateful hearts. Great is your faithfulness. Your promises still stand. Your promise is true. Great is your faithfulness, and we thank you. Lord, we, we ask that for those of us in this room who may have a giant in front of us, that we will, whether we're moms, dads, children, whatever, that we will realize, Lord, that our strength is in you and that we would submit that to you, and you will give us what we need in your power to take those giants down, Lord. It's in your power so that you will get the glory. And that's what we give today, Lord. Not that we're saying that we were so great and that we made a decision, but we were great in your strength. And Lord, I just pray in this room for those who are struggling, maybe even with an addiction or something that they need. They've tried and tried to slay it in their own strength over and over I pray, Lord, that you would just today give them the courage to pick up the, the sling and throw the rocks one more time in your strength. 
thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us and for your faithfulness to us that never, that your, um, your supply that never runs short. I pray, especially today, for moms, this is Mother's Day. I pray for those who are celebrating good times, and then there are times uh, some are celebrating days that bring some sense of sadness. I pray that in all of that, that, that you would be honored, and you would let them know that, that you love them, and that you are faithful, and that you are there with them. We ask all of this in the powerful name of Jesus. Awesome. Well, hey, it is Mother's Day, so thanks for being with us, um, and um, if you're a guest or just want to talk more about maybe this or some ways to get involved or all these other things, um, I'll be at the guest area on your way out and would invite you to stop by there if there's something you want to talk about or something God's doing and you want to share or if you just want to get more info uh, or want an autograph, <laughs> that can work too. Um, but have a great Mother's Day. Uh, have an awesome week. We'd love to see you back for week three of Shepherds and the Kings next Sunday. But be blessed and go in victory today. Thanks for being with us.